Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Psychosocial Distancing Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Daniel Chadbourne, and with me, as always, is Thomas Brooks. Hello, hello. And Alyssa Jones. Hi, everybody. And joining us today as we continue our deep dive into cognitive psychology is Dr. Rob Lockemeyer. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's, it's a pleasure. Um, so we normally let our guests introduce themselves outside of their name because you could probably speak to your research and your accomplishments much better than we can. So we'll let you tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so uh, I just graduated with my PhD at Texas A&M University Commerce, um, and so I'm working in the Department of Psychology at SUNY Oneonta, um, SUNY standing for the State University of New York, so out here in central New York, um, and so teaching psychology, statistics, research methods, cognitive psychology, and my main research focus is in um, sort of how um, estimator variables affect eyewitness identification. And what I mean by estimator variables are aspects of crimes that um, happen naturally. So they're uncontrollable to us or the criminal justice system. And some of those um, involve distance or uh, the number of perpetrators that are um, committing crimes and also uh, weapon focus, which I think we're going to talk about. Yeah, th this chapter, we're moving into attention um to kind of follow i think i think we've kind of settled on the sternberg book but to kind of follow that line we're moving into attention and you know what what better thing to kind of keep our you know some of our themes of these uh, you know law related crime related uh topics to discuss the weapon focus effect so i i guess we should start by having you let us know what the weapon of fo weapon focus effect is. Yeah, so like I said, it's one of those estimated variables that we don't have control over. Um, it happens naturally during crimes. Oftentimes, perpetrators carry weapons while, while committing crimes. And so the general weapon focus effect is how weapons harm memory, memory for the uh, perpetrator's face, but also memory for um, uh, the, the scene and things that, that are happening during the event. Um, so it, it can, it can affect identification performance and it can also, um, you know, have some effects on confidence. Um, but generally, uh, as we'll get to, um, confidence has seemed pretty stable across different, uh, conditions of weapon versus no weapon, but yeah, the general weapon focus effect is just that weapons harm memory. Um, and as we'll speak about, due to attention mostly. So what is the magnitude of the effect of weapon focus? Because um, I'm thinking, you know, when I think of crimes, I obviously think of violence or things related to weapons. Um, so if, you know, I don't know what the majority of violent crimes are with a weapon present, but is this kind of like saying that... Uh, if a weapon is present, we can't trust an eyewitness, or is this just something that we need to take into consideration when investigating crimes? Yeah, so the there there was a recent sort of survey study um, that uh, polled criminals um, that are currently in prison, and about twenty percent of them said that they had a weapon when they committed the crime. Um, so I think that's a pretty decent percentage, one out of five. And so 
Um, yes, this is something that um, affects memory. And I don't think we can totally um, eliminate an identification that's made with a weapon um, because confidence data has shown that um, high confidence can still reasonably predict accuracy even when a weapon is present. Um, so it is something that we need to take into consideration and educate jury members on when these uh, types of crimes uh, come up at trial. Um, but there is research that, that supports um, how eyewitnesses can still be reasonably reliable even under uh, even in a, when a weapon is present. I think it's also important to explain to the listeners, um, just as a reminder to everybody, I'm also an eyewitness memory researcher. I actually was trained in the same lab as uh, Dr. Lockmar. Um, but I think that it's important for everybody to also uh, learn about how the weapon focus effect really seems to, to be prominent in the data that has to do with like the details about the perpetrators like appearance, like their clothing or certain other details about the crime itself. Um, a lot of the data doesn't necessarily support that the, the memory for the face is as harmed as the other details. So there is still like Rob is explaining, there are reasons to believe that there is still um, a chance these eyewitnesses are at least able to produce a sufficient lineup um, identification response. So like when it when it comes to memory and attention, this is just essentially one of those things that can split attention because you're focused on this item and you're not going to be as focused on these other things. And it kind of, I think, adds to some of the conversations that we've had before on eyewitness testimony and whatnot, that this is sort of a piece that we have to take into consideration. And it's like kind of why other evidence and other aspects of, of you know, building a case against a perpetrator with a gun um, or another weapon is is very important. That reminds me, I was going to ask as well, are all weapons created equal for this effect? Because I think like the prototype weapon is a gun, but are there like, you know, a baseball bat wrapped in barbed wire? Is that going to draw the same effect? Yeah, there, um, there has been some research on that and, and I pretty much yes. Um, but, and there's even also been some, some research on uh, just your normal objects like, uh, like a stapler being used as a weapon. So a non-weapon being used in a, in, a, in a threatening way that can produce the same effect. Not as, not as large, but we can see some effects on particularly recall like uh, Dr. Jones was speaking of. Speaking of. Um, but yeah, I think for the most part, as long as a weapon is is threatening, um, it, it is going to most likely produce a weapon focus effect. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. I'm just thinking about trying to take this to like the next degree, and like if you threaten someone with a rubber chicken, does it have an effect? <laughs> like, is is there is there a limit that you can hit for it? Just doesn't have an effect maybe it's too i mean i think that, that that's one of the things that we were going to talk about are sort of these 
types, these hypotheses that are around it. And mm -hmm. I mean, is there a point where maybe it doesn't have to be threatening, but the flip side of this being the unusual aspect of it. And so maybe you could touch on that, these kind of two competing hypotheses. Yeah. So um, I, we can start with the, uh, the threat or, or arousal hypothesis, um, which um, comes from the work that uh, Loftus has done in, in the 80s, but also other other researchers throughout the 90s. And, and it's continuing today. It's, it's a really um, thoroughly researched uh, effect. Um, but it can be all, all uh, traced all the way back to James Easterbrook in the 50s um, in his Q utilization hypothesis, which essentially states that under heightened arousal, um, the, the uh, attention of people are, is going to be narrowed onto the most central cues that are relevant for survival um, and sort of the peripheral uh, uh, details are, are, are um, you know, left alone. So in a survival situation, you see a bear in, a bear in the forest, you're going to uh, get tunnel vision and only be able to focus on the bear because that is what is most relevant for you to uh, escape that situation. So it, that's analogous to the weapon focus effect and how when weapons are, are present in, in during crimes, uh, eyewitnesses often report that they're that they feel threatened and due to due to that threatening nature of the weapon their attention is drawn to the weapon and away from the face the weapon becomes the central detail that's relevant for survival in that situation and the face becomes a peripheral uh, uh, detail even though for us in the criminal justice system the face we would like to see the face be the central detail. We want that to be remembered over the, over the gun, but there has been research shown that people do recognize the gun because it is a central detail, but obviously a reduced uh, um, performance for recognizing faces and, and other uh, details about the crime. So that's the arousal hypothesis. And then sort of in the, in the, in the nineties work done by Carrie Pickle, um, started the unusualness hypothesis and that said that, well, it's maybe not so much about the threatening or the arousal uh, nature of a weapon, but that it's unusual that somebody is just in a, in a convenience store and somebody, uh, a perpetrator runs into the convenience store with, with a gun. It's unexpected. They, attention gets drawn to it because it's unexpected within the context of, of the event. And that is what drives attention. So it's pretty, I think, well-founded that um, the weapon focus effect is due to attention. However, what's up for more debate is what draws the attention. Is it the threatening nature of the weapon or the unexpected nature of a weapon in many contexts? Hmm. The uh, unusualness hypothesis, I'm not going to say like jives more with me, but thinking about like my research in like scripts, for example, like as soon as you add an element in a script that doesn't match, like that thing is going to be remembered more than anything else. Like you can create false memories around items that aren't there, but would expect to be there. 
so if you introduce something that's totally alien to the script, then people are going to remember it. It's going to stick out. I just use that example. I mean, not with the scripts, but uh, social psychology. I mean, like, I think that that's why it may, might jive better with us. Is <laughs> <laughs> that social cognitive aspect of, you know, you're walking across, tell my students, you're walking across campus every day. You're passing the same faces, the same people. You drowned it all out. But the second someone's in a full clown costume, that's suddenly going to take all of your attention away because it's it's shocking, it's unusual, it's unexpected. This thing that you don't expect to see happen is suddenly there. But also there's, what is it, inattention blindness? So you can miss the unexpected thing if you're hyper-focused on the things that you expect to be there. So like the gorilla suit while you're counting, you know, mm -hmm. basketballs. Right. And then there's also like the flip side of it where it's a thing called the distinctiveness heuristic. And Rob, correct me if I'm wrong here, but whenever you see something that's distinctive that you are asked whether or not you remember it being something that you saw, um, if it's distinctive or salient, you start to say, no, I would definitely remember if that was there because it's so salient or distinctive. But a lot of the time that's a fallacy and we we fall victim to that which one are you more partial to or are do you just sit back and watch the researchers fight in the journals <laughs> i think that i think they're all um uh, effects that are definitely real and that happen i think that it's just going to depend on the circumstances and what's being um assessed or what's being evaluated whatever it is that you're trying to search your memory for it's just going to depend on a lot of circumstances in my opinion yeah i think going back to the the research around the unusualness hypothesis i think it's important to to talk about how the effects can be diminished but they can also be increased depending on the context right so there's been studies done um, showing a gun at a shooting range that fits in the context of the of the environment, and we don't see a weapon focus effect in those cases. So that's definitely support for this unusualness hypothesis. Um, but again, and by on the flip side of that, that's also the 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 congruent aspect of a gun at a shooting range is not going to elicit arousal either so um even though you know that is that support for this unusualness hypothesis um it's also diminishing the arousal this hypothesis at the same time um there's there's other research that has um, prior that takes into account prior knowledge so a gun that is held by a police officer so not the environment but a gun that's held by a police officer weapon focus effect is diminished in that case as well because again it's it's expected that a police officer is going to hold a gun but people are also not threatened by a police officer with a gun usually um, because they expect them to have it um, and then there, um, there's also evidence to show that the weapon focus effects is larger when a weapon violates cultural stereotypes so when a when a woman holds a gun weapon focus effect is even larger than when a man holds a gun with oh. when the context is 
uh, incongruence. It's fascinating. <laughs> yeah, so a lot of different circumstances can shift when we see the effect and how large the effect is, is uh, in the lab. So if I'm going to shoot for committing a crime, I should do battery via rubber chicken at the gun range. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. I think, it's also, <laughs> I think it's also important to mention that it is really hard to test the um, arousal hypothesis in the lab or really just at all because of ethical concerns. It's really hard to get approval to do a study where you actually put your participants in a situation where they feel threatened. So the research is kind of hard to conduct in that, in that sense. And so um, there's been a few cool studies that have actually been able to accomplish that, that, that sort of thing. But um, it's definitely a, a, an obstacle when it comes to weapon focus effect research. Yeah, so one of them I think we can talk about um, is was by Morgan. And so this wasn't a, a weapon focus effect study, but it was a study that um, heightened arousal and stress like extremely. So um, I believe they were military recruits that were being interrogated for a long, long duration of time by the same person or the same two people, maybe. Um, and being in the same room with this person for, I think it was upwards of 30 or more minutes um, under that high, high stress level, they came out of there and they, and they didn't recognize, they couldn't pick that person out of, out of a lineup because of the extreme stress that they were under. So it's not a weapon focus effect study, but it, it, it lends itself to that hypothesis that stress can affect memory. And if, and if we're going to, um, call you, know, you use weapons and, and treat them as uh, eliciting uh, threat then it, it should be able to do the same thing there's also the london dungeon study too that's really cool where they did an experiment um with people who were at the london dungeon which is a basically like a haunted house um so they're already signing up to be scared and put under you know stress where they were able to actually try to test that sort of hypothesis and, and get at um, whether or not a high level of stress would affect memory. And if I'm remembering correctly, Rob, uh, it did, didn't it? It, it showed the, the similar effect as the weapon focus effect would have. Yeah. yeah. I think we need so, to yeah. set up a Department of Psychology haunted house, Daniel. You know, our psychi used to do that. Oh. <gasps> We need to revive that. <laughs> we do. We do. That's really cool because we tried to do it ourselves, a, a version of the experiment in our lab. And we like worked with this haunted house in the area. We had a bunch of our research assistants that were, you know, on board and we were going out to the haunted house like multiple days a week. And let me tell you, it is a hard task to do a field study like that. It is incredibly hard. So it's, I give kudos to any researcher that goes out into the field and, and collects data. Yeah. Yeah, like this, this, this has a similar context, like when we talk about attention to, like, especially with the stress aspect of it, because there's a lot of research that does look at like how kind of memory can be influenced or how that la stress can affect attention, which can then affect memory. And probably the most applicable to most students would be something like test anxiety. 
you go into taking a test, you're, you're very stressed out and suddenly you can't remember everything you just studied. And then you leave and you can't remember anything from the test. I, I still try to remember when I talk about our, um, the, uh, comprehensive exams that we took. I can remember a couple of them, but I can't remember much. I remember sitting there for like three hours going over questions and it's just, it's kind of a blank. It's this weird fuzzy spot in my memory. I remember going in, I remember leaving. I don't remember a whole lot about what I wrote. <laughs> a good point. I feel like there was periods of grad school too, where it's just a big hole in my memory <laughs> because of the level of stress that we were under. <laughs> multivariate statistics oh yeah i think we can all agree with that one <laughs> <laughs> this bumps up against the trauma research a little bit because they look at how like excessive cortisol in your system will break down neurons in your hippocampus and so if you have like chronic stress or if you've been through traumatic instances that you won't you may lose details but the themes and what happened are still there but you start seeing like neuron decay in areas that are associated with memory. Huh. That's really interesting stuff. Interesting stuff. I'm going to have to work that into my intro class. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't remember learning that, but I'm sure I did at some point, but that's really cool to, to understand that that goes on. It's not cool that it happens, but it's cool. <laughs> Understand it. <laughs> good, good qualifier. Yeah. Could we dig a little deeper into eyewitness confidence? I was showing my class, my intro class, actually a video from Loftus, knock on wood, where she talked about how uh, false memories can be delivered very emotionally and confidently. So how do we know when confidence is a good predictor of a memory? like a true memory and when it's not a good predictor of a true memory. Yeah. So I think the biggest thing and in, in reference to, to that video potentially um, is that we should never trust a confidence assessment judgment that happens in court that happens months or a year after somebody uh, identifies somebody from a lineup. Um, the, the most current research is, finds that we need to assess confidence immediately after a lineup. And in that case, there is some value. Um, but yeah, it, during, during the trial on the witness stand, emotions can, you know, can contribute to this, these false memories. Um, and, and even though they're highly confident and emotional, they're, could, they're, they're questionable. Um, so immediately after lineups or as soon as possible after crimes to gather information and to, and to, to get the confidence level, that's the best time to, to do it. And that's when we see the most, that's how we see the most value out of it. Okay. Yeah. Cause I did, I guess I didn't think about the timeline when someone would be doing a eyewitness, like, uh, you know, doing a lineup. Cause that's usually relatively quickly after the crime or at least they tried to make it relatively quickly, but then you don't actually go to trial till six months, a year, a year and a half later. Yeah. Yeah. And throughout a few decades ago in like the seventies and the eight in the eighties in the eyewitness fields, confidence did 
it, people thought confidence had at best a weak relationship. And that was one of the, one of the reasons uh, why they thought that is because they were assessing uh, delayed confidence judgments. Um, but when we assess immediately after lineup confidence judgments, um, along with some statistical advances, uh, we see that there is actually, there can be uh, actually a pretty good relationship between confidence and accuracy. Um, and we see that with, with the weapon focus effect literature. There's a few papers that have, that have shown um, even when a weapon is present, if somebody uh, reports high confidence, they can be highly accurate. I have kind of a side note, just real quick about attention too, um, in terms of confidence as well. Um, it's interesting because uh, I think Thomas, you mentioned something about this earlier in the discussion, but there are certain factors that can draw attention away from the weapon, um, even though the weapon initially you know, drew attention to it. Um, so for instance, distinctive features on the face actually can get rid of the weapon focus effect basically, or, or reverse it. So there's um, one particular study that I'm thinking of, it's Carlson and Carlson 2014, where they uh, showed that if you put a pretty salient distinctive feature on the perpetrator's face, that the weapon focus effect disappears. And um, it's pretty much, uh, they, they, they theorized that or speculated that um, the distinctive feature drew attention back to the perpetrator's face. And so that, you know, got rid of the, the tunnel vision effect that is potentially going on with um, the presence of a weapon. Um, but again, confidence seems to stand true and still be pretty reliable in terms of, of uh, accuracy if they report high confidence, like, like Rob said. Did, did, with that, are they mainly focused on like the thing? So like if you were to, let's say, put something on your face to make it, would they focus on like whatever it was, whatever that distinctive feature is, but not the rest? Or does it kind of just bring their attention to the face as a whole? That's a good question. So I've done a little bit of research in terms of just distinctive features on the face, and it does seem to harm performance in terms of memory for the face. Um, we're not completely sure if that's purely due to attention and like attention being drawn to the distinctive feature and not the rest of the face or if it's something to do with a disruption to the way the face is being processed as a whole, um, whether that is attention-based or not. Um, it would be really cool for somebody to do a study where they use eye tracking um, data or an eye tracking machine to determine where the person's uh, attention is being um, allocated or drawn to. And I think actually we might know somebody who's working on a project similar to that, or hopefully, um, but it would be really cool for somebody to do something similar to that. I know that they, there's a lot of eyewitness studies out there, not a lot, but a few eyewitness studies where they've used eye tracking, but I can't remember one in particular that's used um, or manipulated distinctive features on the face as well as a weapon, for instance, that would be, that would be really cool to, to see. I'm thinking that's going to be tough. Yeah, I think it's been a long time since we've seen a, an eye, uh, an eye tracker weapon focus study. Um, there, there's a few out there, um, but 
do, do, I don't think they, I don't think there's anything in terms of both distinctive features and weapon to see exactly how the allocation of attention is uh, distributed. In those studies that you just mentioned, I'm actually not familiar with them. Did they show that the fixations or like the the eye tracking showed evidence of the eye eyes following the weapon? Yeah, so they manipulated what was held by the people and they and they showed that that uh, participants spent longer looking at weapons than other non-weapon objects. That's cool. So that backs up definitely an attention aspect that's going on yeah i i don't know I, there's got to be something out there for uh, eye tracking that doesn't involve you like looking at a screen and then tracking sort of where you're looking i'm not sure how they how they study there that are so when we were building the vr lab at commerce there was an option for us to include an eye tracking software into the goggles and so you could create a scenario within a virtual environment where you're approached by a avatar essentially with a distinctive feature on their face and a weapon in their hand and then watch to see where the participant holds their gaze within that 3d environment yeah i actually was really interested in doing something like that um it's going to be a lot of work if i ever end up doing it because of programming and creating the avatar and also trying to make it a realistic enough face for it to be really getting at true face memory because uh, the way that like computer generated faces are processed is honestly different than how we would process a real face. Um, but yeah, those headsets, the VR headsets with the eye tracking inside of it, I've read about those and I know somebody who's actually trying to get one for her lab and those are so cool. I think that that's going to like really get us, um, to take a step forward in terms of the research and understanding what's going on with our with our attention. There's a listener out there who's into graphic design or computer Please science and wants to collaborate on some research. You have our email. Yes, please contact <laughs> us. We need help. <laughs> Well, I mean, I know that there are ways to take actual like three-dimensional space and like video and put them into kind of a standard setting. And so you could put someone in a situation where they're maybe like standing in an alley or standing in a convenience store where you have a full 360 view of that convenience store that they can kind of look around in and then have someone approach them. I think it'd Ooh, be possible. I wonder if you could that do cool. a, instead of virtual reality, do augmented reality. Yeah. And do augmented goggles with the eye tracking, if that would be possible. So you could have you're a- You're just layering something on top of of mm -hmm. what you're seeing already. That would be a maybe, yeah, an easier way to. And then you could actually that. have a Confederate with a weapon and a distinctive feature. Ooh, yeah, because yeah, that's really an important part too, is that the person that you're testing them on in terms of the face, you have to have access to them to be able to take other pictures for the recognition part of the experiment. Um, so that's a, another part of how, uh, another part of what would go into the, the design aspect. Yeah, it might be easier if you've got a set of VR goggles and you're able to kind of like stream whatever. There's just a camera in front of them. You could, they see whatever, and then you're just adding stuff. Oh, that'd be fascinating. Mm -hmm. I bet somebody out there is working on it, or at least moving forward with it. VR is such a cool thing that's going to change our world in terms of psych psychological research. I'm really excited about it. 
I mean, if they're not working on it now and they listen to this, they're going to start. Shoot. <laughs> <laughs> and if they don't, they should. Yeah. At the very least. And then just, you know, put a little thank you in the comments. <laughs> <laughs> That's all we need. <laughs> I, I need some acknowledgement. Acknowledgements. Acknowledgements, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so since we're on the topic of research, Rob, what particularly do you do? I heard that your dissertation was involved in aspects of weapon focus. So can you tell us a little bit about that and what you looked for and what you found, what you learned? Like, what was that dissertation experience like? Yeah. So it, it um, had, so it has to do with the, I guess, the limitations of trying to study the weapon focus effect in the lab. And so my main idea was that um, going back one step there, there's still, there, there's, there's a lack of research in terms of multi-estimator variable crimes. So you can imagine a situation in which a, a perpetrator has a weapon, but is also 20 feet away from, from the witness, right? So that's two different estimator variables that we have to contribute and we have to uh, uh, um, uh, consider. And so that's what I did in my dissertation was try to combine those two those two uh, uh, estimator variables. And I was thinking that weapons could be more threatening at shorter distances than longer distances. So I tried to kind of hack this limitation we have in the lab that we can't truly threaten our participants, but maybe at shorter distances, weapons could, at least just based on self-report measure, elicit greater threat than a weapon seen at a longer distance. And I'm just speaking about mock crime videos here. Um, the other element was I did try to use different types of weapons. So again, you can imagine that a, a, a weapon or a gun and a knife are both threatening at short distances, but as distance increases, a gun stays relatively threatening, but mm -hmm. unless you're a marksman at throwing knives, a, a knife is not as threatening at long distances. So that's what I tried to tackle. I tried to uh, manipulate the distance in which uh, the perpetrator and the witness was, uh, the distance between the perpetrator and the witness and whether the, the perpetrator had a gun or a knife or nothing in, the, in their hands. Um, so I created mock crime, uh, mock, mock crime videos. It was a person standing in, in a location with a gun or a knife or nothing behind their back. And they, and they pulled that out. Um, and after a distractor task, my participants uh, viewed the lineup and tried to pick out the, the uh, perpetrator from, from the video. It turns out we didn't find that much. There was a bit of a, a power issue um, that, that limited us. Um, we did find the obvious distance effects, longer distances harmed uh, memory more than shorter distances. And we saw at short distances, a trend in the right direction for a weapon focus effect. The gun was uh, um, descriptively uh, harmed memory more than um, a, a non-weapon, just an empty hand. 
but at long distances, they didn't separate uh, both a gun and a knife were still equally uh, uh, impactful. Um, but in my limitations section, one of the things we've been talking about, virtual reality, augmented reality, is that was a short paragraph for my limit in my limitations sections because I talked about these ethical concerns about threatening participants. We can't actually wave a gun in their face. It won't get through IRB. So virtual reality it was is one way that I think weapon focus effect literature could turn to. And um, maybe IRB might approve a study in, 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 in that realm. Mm -hmm. yeah. At least you have a better shot. You know, we have some colleagues that do horror games and make participants like, you know, freak out in virtual spaces already. So yeah, right. Yeah, right. So there, there is some precedent. I've done that experiment and it is crazy what <laughs> some of those games will do to you. <laughs> But imagine too that you know there's there's we're still understanding like the extent of how real it is for the person or how kind of you know again perceived so maybe maybe within the next five years it'll be fine and then at some point someone's gonna do a study and be like you can't wave a gun in their face in vr either oh man yeah no that's true because it is terrifying mm -hmm. some the game that i played in this one experiment was absolutely terrifying there's no way that i would be able to recall details of, of the situation that i was in in the game because all i could think about was how terrified i was and trying not to basically collapse in fear like <laughs> they're intense but i signed up for it i was ready for it but still <laughs> it was it was it was crazy right is this the haunted house one warm consent yes it is the haunted house one yeah the phasmophobia it is um, intense yes. <laughs> No, I just like, I did that one too. I just like crawled along the side of the walls and I was yeah. like, ghost, are you there? Nope. Okay, back to the van. <laughs> I know. They actually took videos of me in the game, like for um, uh, purposes for publication and, and their dissertation. But it was because I guess my reactions were so extreme. <laughs> like I would like drop to the ground and just like shake and like, like just tell myself like, no, 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 no. Like there's nothing, like I can't do it. Like I ripped my head, the headgear off multiple times. Like I can't imagine being in a situation that was obviously not like that because ghosts aren't real, but a situation that made me that scared, there's no way I would be able to function, much less pay attention to anything going, around, going on around me. All I want to do is shut my attention off basically if I'm that scared. <laughs> we should play that game. It's like four, mm -hmm. it's like four player. You could play it non VR, and we can I, see how much we can remember from it afterwards. I would love to play that's that. How, and, that's yeah. how I did it. I played non VR. I couldn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> Turn the lights off. Put big headphones on. Yeah, really set the mood. Not it's remember so anything immersive. about the house. Yeah, that's fascinating. <laughs> no, we'll need to have that researcher on once the dissertation gets published. Yes. Yes. It's a very cool study, so y'all should definitely do that. Cool. I'm trying to think. This may be a space that we cut. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't have any more questions. <laughs> I, I guess we could end with we we try to ask, I guess, all our guests something along these lines. Where, like, you know, in, in part, where do you see the future of this research going, maybe outside of VR? And what would be, I guess, sort of your 
dream study, if money was not an object, if IRB was not an object, what's sort of the dream study in, in something like this to maybe parse out some of these, uh, these issues? Yeah, I mean, I, I think what Alyssa alluded to earlier, the, the haunted house aspect of, of this would be awesome to, to get into the field and, and test this in, in the real world. Um, but I mean, if IRB is not a, not a, not a thing either, we can just stage a real live <laughs> Start mugging, right? mugging all of your participants as they come into the lab. <laughs> mugging them all, yeah. <laughs> if we, if we really want to see what, if it's threat or, or unusualness, that's, that's the, that's pushing the boundaries all the way. We could test um, all the different weapons too, you know, brandish a knife, bring in a shotgun, yeah. a beer bottle. Rubber stapler chicken. whatever we want like we could literally rubber chicken a yeah, rubber chicken <laughs> a bomb we could test everything <laughs> that would be that would i mean really the haunted house you could design a room in the haunted house to do that and then That's your true. confederate would just pick up a different weapon every time yeah that, would be yeah, that, that's, that is a good idea i wonder if you could do the same with something like an escape room so like you have like a confederate in the, in the the escape room as well so like so there there's an attention focus with that as well because they're trying to leave they're trying to escape but also you could have maybe you know if there's someone in the room helping them in this stressful situation and then a weapon yeah. is drawn does that i think <laughs> you're locked in a safe room and then your partner draws a weapon <laughs> hey what did, what did we learn? You, you, you hit your participants over the head with uh, whatever stimuli you're trying to, to work with them because you want them to get it. And in this case, you literally hit them over the head. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> That's worse than the haunted house. Yeah. <laughs> I think it would be really cool, though, too, to like with any study um, in this kind of context is to always have some kind of um, physiological form of evidence to back up how stressed the person actually was, because I don't think we've talked about this, but people obviously have different levels of, of tolerance when it comes to stress and fear. Um, so a lot of researchers will try to use um, things like the galvanic skin response um, mm -hmm. machine, which is just basically um, something that detects uh, perspiration, I think is what it is. So when you get stressed, your body, uh, uh, perspires more. Uh, and so that is an indicator of high levels of stress. There's other um, forms of, of uh, technology that we could use like um, heart rate monitors or um, I'm blanking on another one. But there's a lot of things that we could back up, you know, the level of stress the person's under. I would say it's new, but I remember reading about it like a decade ago. There's a, um, there's a variation of like the EEG that you can set up wirelessly. Oh, and cool. so you have like a nurse put the heart rate monitor, it kind of measures the basic aspects of like stress response. And then you could have like everyone in a room. Because um, I remember coming across this when when talking to a, a research method student about doing like test anxiety studies. I'm like, well, you, you bring them into a room, you have to put the whole EEG and all the equipment on them. And they had come across something when like doing their own research on it that was was wireless. It goes to a computer in the front of the room or a laptop and you just kind of need someone to set it up 
And then you could have a whole classroom take a test. Or in this case, you could have participants go through the haunted house and you can measure their their vitals as they go through. I mean, maybe a Fitbit would be enough to do it. That's interesting, actually. Yeah, Fitbit or an Apple Watch, something that tracks your heart rate and, and over a period of time. We do have a G-Vert. A what? A G-Vert. What is that? <laughs> it's similar. It also does... Uh... What is it? G's? So how many it's G's you're using or exerting in an activity? For like exercise sports science research, where you can like put mm -hmm. it onto an athlete and have them run or have them engage in physical activity so you can see how their movement it, and stuff. I think it does heart rate too. But if you put them on all of their limbs and it creates a full uh, model of their behavior and exertion. Yeah, we can't talk about the research that we proposed using it just yet to use the g for, yeah no that was irb didn't like that what is it called a g oh my gosh i can only imagine um what, what is it called a g what g vert g vert -E rt okay i'm gonna have to look into that that's really interesting yeah i think we have like four well i had four now they're in my old lab but we probably have people get in that old lab who could we do have people in the old lab yeah we do <laughs> cool well do we have any i guess i guess last last thoughts or comments before i get us into our our last two important things of the podcast i guess i can just end with the final thoughts um that you know the weapons they do harm memory but there is optimism as far as immediate confidence and so um crimes that happen with weapons and, and identifications that result from these types of crimes should still be admissible in court. And with a high confidence identification, we can still get some value from that. So more like jury education and stuff to, to be able to evaluate this type of evidence. Yeah. So I guess with that, I'll move us into our bias of the week. Whoop, whoop. So th this week's bias, as always, uh, for this season is brought to you by Kahneman and Seversky. Um, I'm actually working on an actual ad read to mock the whole fact that it's just another Kahneman and uh, Zversky uh, <laughs> bias because we've got too many of them. So this week's bias is the pseudo certainty effect. Um, I, I had a lot of difficulty trying to find the right bias for this week, but I figured, hey, since we're talking about weapons, oh, maybe we'll pretend that this has something to do with it. But the pseudo-certainty effect, uh, Zversky and Kahneman, 1986, the tendency to make risk-averse choices if the expected outcome is positive, but risk-seeking choices to avoid negative outcomes. And so all I could think of is, is that the flip side of this. Why does someone use a weapon? Mm. Hmm. Yeah, I know. That's why I would bring the rubber chicken for battery at the gun range. <laughs> High risk. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> to avoid getting recognized. <laughs> so, yeah, we, we have plenty more as we delve into Kahneman and Zversky. <laughs> Research.
So I, I guess I guess we have one more thing to discuss. We need an update on Chomsky Watch. Thomas reached out to Noam Chomsky to see if he would be a guest oh, on the really? podcast, and uh, we're in like week three, week two. Yeah, I think it's three. week three. I have not heard from Chomsky. There, there is oh. zero chance of Chomsky precipitation in the area as of right now. Yeah, yeah. But next week, a front's coming through, so who knows? Yeah, and worst and worst case, I I'm gonna work on my Chomsky impression. So this is true. Yeah, no, we decided that if he doesn't accept, okay. then Daniel's going to pretend to be Chomsky, to be Chomsky and then Chomsky. Alyssa and I are gonna interview him. Yeah, I love I like it. that. That's fun. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go watch some more some some of his extreme takes podcasts that he's been on. So, and then we can just share it with him and say. Here. Thanks. Yeah. We did our best. <laughs> it's a tribute. We did our best yeah. without you. Yeah. So. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you so much, Rob, uh, for coming on and, and talking with us. Thank and, and you for of, inviting me. Yeah. Yeah, it was was really good. And I, I can I can say that, that I'm sure our students are gonna really enjoy. It. I mean, this is one of those topics that it's it's better than us rambling about no, actually us rambling about hallucinations is pretty good. That was pretty good. <laughs> so yeah, so I, I guess with all of that, we will we will bid our audience goodbye. Goodbye, everyone. Goodbye. Bye, everybody.